today's read, Midnight, a gangster love story by Sister Soldier. Chapter 25, Virgins. Fozzie pulled out his brown Dunhill wallet and flipped it open. There were eight slots inside. I checked out that each of the eight slots carried credit cards, beginning with his American Express black card. The Indian jeweler, whose genuine dark gold and elegantly designed thick, wide bangles we selected, was patient and pleasant, but firm. He was the sixth jeweler we had visited that day. We left the arrogant Arabs in Brooklyn. We fled from the jive Jews in Manhattan and landed in Queens with the dark man from India, who understood how to take his customers into the back room and line his bangles up on a soft black velvet cloth, unafraid that we were going to jump up and scream, This is a hole up, motherfucker. Get on the floor. Of course, he had an armed guard in his place who was definitely another Indian. I guessed probably one of his cousins, but I respected that. Discount is always possible with cash. Cash is always good, he said, smiling swiftly and rocking his head from side to side the way Indians tend to do. Then he pulled back to seriousness. Each gold bangle cost somewhere in the vicinity of $600. Fozzie had selected 10 bangles, each with a different design. I had already pushed the jeweler to apply a 10% discount because of the quantity of the purchase. The total price for the 24 karat gold bangles was now at $5,400. The 10 diamond bracelets that Fozzie then selected cost somewhere in the vicinity of $6,000 for each one. I sat blank-faced but in shock of how easily Fozzie made decisions. I wondered if the jeweler really expected us to spread almost $65,000 in cash onto his glass counter. Easy, Fozzie told the jeweler. You have already applied the 10% discount for my overall purchase, so I don't mind paying the tax for the jewels. I will also need a receipt. I will have everything appraised and insured in any case. He slid his black card onto the counter. Before the Indian jeweler could cast any doubt, he slid his driver's license next to the card. I saw that both Fozzie's and his father's name were on his credit card. The jeweler ran his credit. It was only then that I felt fucked up. Not about Fozzie, but about myself. I mean, I was seated there with a pocket filled with my own hard-earned cash, but Fozzie had legitimacy and backup. He was in the position I should be in, easily, a son, fully set up and financed by his father. A son who still studied hard and worked non-stop and pushed hard to make his own name in this world. 
He must love his woman a lot, I thought. Even if his father is backing up his spending, it was still a lot of paper to drop in one city. As the jeweler cleaned and boxed the jewels and prepared the paperwork, Fozzie turned to me and said, I think you are right. My new wife is going to love these jewels more than she loves me, he smiled. He was wearing a tan leisure suit, (laughs) tan leisure suit and hard shoes. He was much more confident and laid back than I had expected. He could flow in Arabic, English, or Sudanese Creole, although he spoke English the majority of the time. The jeweler returned with the cases, opened them one last time to reassure us. He closed them, locked the clasp on each of the boxes, and placed each case into one black velvet sack. He put the sack inside a gold-embossed shopping bag. He asked, Do you need an escort to your car? He glanced at his armed guard. No, we're good. I stood up and answered for Fozzie. I took the shopping bag, turned to Fozzie and saying, let me carry this for you. Don't try to get away, Fozzie joked. You are probably much faster than me, but I am a long distance runner. Way after you run your fastest race and run out of breath, I'll keep coming and find you wherever you are. He laughed. I did not. And when you catch up with me, what will you do? I asked him solemnly. I saw he felt a wave of intimidation. He was six feet. I was six one. Lighten up. I'm just joking. My uncle told me that you are the perfect businessman. Solid, reliable. I trust you. Fozzie said, still smiling. I remembered then how comfortable money, family, and status makes a male youth feel. I relaxed some. I had about 50 questions I wanted to ask him. He was 24 years old. I calculated from the birth date on his driver's license. He was only 10 years older than me. He must have felt some of my same feelings about a female or gone through some of my similar situations. He was already fully established. He was from my country and my religion. Maybe he could tell me something different than the shit that everyone else here was talking that didn't sound right in my ear. I wanted to know if he was fucking these American girls while he was living up in Massachusetts or if he was waiting until marriage the way Muslim men and women are supposed to do. I wanted to know if he kept one secret girlfriend up there with him. And if he did, what would he do with her after his wedding? Would he cut her off? Did he love her? What did his father require from him? I knew I needed to think before I spoke. I knew I had to put my words together right to ask about women marriage and personal things that every young man wants to know and should learn from his own father. I knew this would probably be the last time that I saw Fozzie, alone and man to man. After this, he would be swept up into a wedding, whirlwind and beginning his new life.
outside, we walked. He suggested McDonald's. I think he thought it was for my benefit. I laughed and directed him to a nearby Thai restaurant. It was 4.30 p.m. I had just enough time to have an early dinner with him, then deliver him and the jewels to his father. Before we were seated, I placed a call to his uncle, Mr. Salim Ahmed Amin Ghazali, the one who hired us for the wedding and paid out the deposit. I gave him the address of the restaurant so that he would send a car to pick both of us up. If Fozzie locates and purchases the jewels today, give us a call at once. We don't want him walking the streets or riding the train with the jewels. We'll send a car to wherever you are, Mr. Ghazali had instructed me in advance. I had insisted that it wasn't necessary. Mr. Ghazali insisted that it was. When I went to join Fozzie at our table, he was surrounded by the smoke from his cigarette and finishing off his Singha, a brand of Thai beer. I figured this was what Uma and his auntie Tamira had been discussing concerning Fozzie's losing his tradition because Muslims don't drink alcohol. I didn't say nothing about it. How long have you been living in America? I asked him, taking my seat. Let's see. I completed my bachelor's and master's degree in five years at MIT. My PhD took only two years at Harvard. That's seven years. Before that, were you living in the Sudan? I asked. No, I did boarding school in Switzerland, he said matter-of-factly. The waiter interrupted. We placed our orders. And bring me another beer, Fozzie told him. So, how was it being away from Sudan? Did you like it better? I asked. I do, as my father says. When he sent me to a European boarding school, I was 12 years old. I graduated at the top of my class and got recruited on a full five-year master's program scholarship to attend MIT at age 17. By the time I was 21, I'd graduated MIT and got recruited by a military firm in Massachusetts while completing my PhD at Harvard. Now, I've been hired by a firm here in New York, and I am set to get started working there next month. Not bad, right? He asked, smiling and tapping his next cigarette on the tabletop, then lighting it up. Then how did you meet your wife? She's from Sudan, right? I asked. Oh, I see. You want to talk about women. He smiled. You are living here in New York, obeying your traditional Sudanese parents. And your balls are turning blue. And you can't take it anymore. He cracked up with men's kind of laughter. You too are Muslim, a believer, right? I reminded him. He leaned back, balancing his weight now on only two legs of the four-legged chair. He took a long drag from his cigarette and turned suddenly serious. You know, when I first began studying engineering, it was extremely difficult. Our professors would always tell us that most of us wouldn't make it. 
never graduate. I didn't want to lose my academic scholarship either. I had to keep my grades up. My father required this also. I and a couple of my classmates would sit up sometimes for three or four nights in a row, crashing our brains together to solve just one math problem. Just looking for one right answer, he said, wandering in his own thoughts. That's how it was for me when I first left Sudan. Everything European and American seemed wrong, backward, crazy. At first, I would think about it real hard and all of the time. I was searching for explanations and answers. In my heart, I am a Muslim man, yet they have a saying here in America that you may have heard before. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. Our waiter served our food, Fozzie's singa and my juice. Fozzie said, the only thing the tire missing is home-baked bread. I wish I had some acida now, he said, referring to a Sudanese bread that Uma makes so expertly. Living over here in the U.S., if you want to be respected, you need to acknowledge and accept the American God, and his name is money. Nothing matters more. All of their religion, rituals, and beliefs are entertainment. Just something for them to say and not mean. Something to say to make them feel all right with themselves. Something they can squeeze into maybe one hour or two hours per week, and that's it. But every day, every hour, every minute, every second they are awake, they are doing something, anything to make money. And when they are asleep, they are even dreaming about money. It is the opposite of Islam. America is the opposite of Sudan, where even if you are wealthy, you wake up to the call to prayer to praise Allah. You bend your knees in prayer five times in only one day. You stop everything and place Allah first. Back home, we say it, we believe it, and we do it. We serve Allah. But believe me, my brother, Fawzi said, gripping his fork and pressing it through the white tablecloth into the wooden table below. A nervous habit, I guess. If you get in the way of this white man's money, they'll kill you. They can do anything for money. I mean anything. I've seen their arsenal. I have even been part of a team that designed a few of their latest deadliest items. They have weapons that can make you and your family evaporate into thin air. No one would ever know that any of you were ever here. Thank you.
he was getting too heavy for me. I really wanted to speak about females. You see, I'm drinking this beer. It's my second one today. I've learned to drink alcohol while living beside them. You have to. If you continually say, I don't drink, it makes them feel suspicious. They'll start asking you a lot of questions, and next thing you know, you'll be isolated and thrown aside completely alone. They'll spread rumors that you are some kind of foreign gorilla or terrorist even. It's crazy. And the American females I let in? Suddenly he relaxed and changed completely. Hey, they are a truckload of fun. They'll do anything, but they are garbage. So you have been with them, I asked, carefully moving toward my real questions. He laughed. Oh, oh yes, he leaned in now. They beg to suck my balls, so I let them. These American girls suck the stress out of my life, and I don't have to give them anything. I just speak politely and thank them for it, he laughed, seeming to reminisce. The first time it happened for me, I was a college freshman. The girl was too. She was from California, my lab partner. Late one night, two of the study guys fell asleep. She started caressing me and tugging on my zipper. When she got on her knees and put her lips on my big boy, oh, what a feeling. After that night, I was hooked. I just convinced myself it was okay to get it because it wasn't actually sex or even fornication. I didn't have to enter the woman's womb. He put his cigarette out, smashing it well after the fire was extinguished. So, did you fuck him or not? I asked. Never, he answered with only one word and a solid, straight face. It was the shortest answer he had given to any one of my questions. I could never slip up and have to bring even one of them home to my family. My mother would die. My father would disown me, so I don't ever get myself into a position where any of them could get pregnant by me. Besides, the suck is enough. Are you talking about the white girls or the black American females? I asked. They are all the same. The American women. I'll give you $10,000 if you can find one single virgin American female who is not a child. He was leaning forward and staring me dead in my eyes. Each of them should be made with an odometer on their foreheads like every car has. When you look at the high mileage on each of them, you wouldn't even want to be bothered. You won't find one virgin, and this is only one of the many reasons why my parents have found me a Sudanese bride. She is Muslim, cultured, raised properly, and yes, a virgin, of course. He leaned back, more relaxed now. I will see her for the first time this Thursday when she arrives in the U.S. along with her entire family, but even then, she will be in niqab and hijab. 
only her eyes will be available to me. For three minutes, I sat there, my mind blown away at how he could put so much care and finance into a woman he had never seen. It must have been easy for him to read the rare, confused look plastered onto my face. I talked to her over the phone for six months. She is 17 years young and so sweet, he emphasized. She studies music and plays the violin, and she reads a lot too. She reads books I don't ever get a chance to even look at. She prays for me and ridicules me when I miss saying my prayers, which is often. It's gotten so I can't get a good night's sleep without hearing her voice. My phone bill is so crazy you could not imagine. Are you worried at all? I asked him seriously. He laughed again. Why don't you just ask straight out how the Americans would ask? You want to know what if she's ugly or fat or disappointing, right? I wasn't thinking that, but now that he mentioned it, it was a funny but good question. Well, she would never have gotten beyond my mother's inspection if she wasn't right for me. The two of them were all the time meeting in Sudan and talking, even writing letters to each other when mom was traveling. My father approves of her too, and he always protects my interests. I trust their judgment completely. I am sure I will love her. I am already very connected with her. After our wedding, she will belong to me forever. The waiter brought the check. I took it before he could lay it on the table. I tucked the balance plus $20 cash as a tip inside the billfold. Hey, if I didn't know any better, I would think you were planning a wedding for yourself also, he smiled. What age are you anyway, he asked. Fourteen, I answered. Man, you had me fooled. Fourteen, and still you're taller than me, he looked at me. Fourteen, the year of curiosity, he said, seemingly speaking aloud to himself and remembering something. It seems like a Sudanese wife is a major expense, I said carefully. I knew it was true. She doesn't have to be. A lot depends on her class, her family background. If she's from a wealthy family, then she and her family will expect more. If she is a poor girl, she'll be happy with handmade jewelry and hand-picked flowers from her groom's backyard. If she's rich or poor, if she loves you, she'll follow wherever you go, even into a mud hut, right? He said, tossing the question my way. What is shit to one man is fertilizer to another. He pulled out one more of his cigarettes. Your wife's family is wealthy then, I pushed. Not really, but if my family has it, why not give it to her? She'll become the mother of my children, inshallah. When I give her something, in some way it still remains with me. It's still mine because she is mine. Besides, if she is happy, my life is so good. No intelligent man 
wants a miserable wife, he said, his cigarette dangling and unlit. Do you think living in this country might change your wife too? I asked him. No, she will follow my lead. I will love her. She will care for our home. This will give her so much to do. Anything she wants, I will provide. I'll work for it. I will bring it home to her. My mother will stay on in the beginning and help her. Her auntie, a widow, will come and stay with us also. My wife will have one baby every year for five years, inshallah. And by the time my first child is five, I will be set up in business in such a way that I will hire engineers to represent me here in the U.S. Then I will move with my family back to the Sudan, working my Sudanese office. This will be best for my daughters to be surrounded by the right kind of culture. But for now, there is trouble in the Sudan. Political trouble and political war is a bad time for earning money. No stability unless you are the man selling the weapons to everyone on all sides, he smiled. On that point, I became silent. There was no way for me to discuss Sudanese politics without mentioning my father. And eventually, anyone from the Sudan discussing the details of politics would have to mention my father, too. I was not prepared for this side of the conversation. This is the reason I rarely asked questions, because when it came my turn to give up answers, I would refuse. He finally struck the match. The fire burned down almost to his fingers before he actually lit his cigarette. You are more mature than I was at your age. You are already a businessman. I can tell that whatever you want, eventually you will have it. Islam is good. In fact, there is nothing better. But here, in America, you have to have two faces if you want to succeed. One, you show them. The other, you show only to those whom you love. Riding in the car, reviewing his words, I could catch the cracks in his story. Easily, I could point out his contradictions, but I like the fact that the things he said seemed to be what he really believed. Based on some experiences that he actually had and he didn't try to cover up his flaws.